Welcome to Weekends. Anna Kasperi, Nando Vila, and Kale Brooks with you. Joe Biden just won the presidency, which means it's yes. time to brunch. That's it. Brunch, That's it. baby. Now, we don't have to be politically active anymore. We don't have to pay no. attention to politics anymore. Now that Biden has defeated Donald Trump, time to brunch. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I predict that the only organizing that liberals are going to do uh, right now is, you know, to advocate for free brunch for all one time, one weekend free brunch for all, <laughs> and maybe like do that an organizing campaign around unfollowing Donald Trump on Twitter. You know, like let's all unfollow this racist Cheeto. And it's it's amazing, okay. though. Yeah, no, that that organizing has already begun. Like I've gotten a million tweets from people who are like, you don't need to follow Trump anymore. Stop following Trump. And it's like, oh. I got it. I got like I'm busy Trump right is now. A good, I'm is not a better like, Twitter on Twitter all day. Than most people, yeah, he's a, he has a better Twitter account than most people. It's more entertaining. No, what I'm actually really looking forward to is being able to laugh how at how unintentionally funny he is because he is funny. We've talked about this on the show before, um, but the fact that he had the power to do things with his sociopathic mind was the terrifying part. Um, but you know, uh, he was also incredibly incompetent and wasn't able to do, uh, several of the things that he promised to do when he was campaigning in 2016. And of course, uh, we're real here at, uh, weekends. Uh, we totally understand that there are some significant flaws with a Biden presidency, but that gives us a lot of uh, content to analyze and talk about over the next four years. Yeah. So. As staff writer Megan Day has written earlier in the week, uh, we might be looking at a Joe Biden, Mitch McConnell coalition government. So, yeah, you know, absolutely. Uh, Love it. Yeah. So we're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to be that much like sharper and more uh, clear in our critique to be able to say like, yeah, no, it's not just that Biden can't do it because of the Republicans. Like Biden never wanted to push for health care. Like, we still have to be the most strongest and ardent advocates of Medicare for all right now. Uh, yeah. So, fights on. <laughs> and brunch well, is the on. Good, well, the good brunch news is, about um, the lack of organizing uh, by liberals over the next four years uh, does put the left in a good position to really organize well, I think that's important. We haven't really been organized, but more importantly, like have a clear message and clear proposals, clear solutions that appeal to a broad base of voters uh, and basically provide a better solution to what Republicans are going to be pitching uh, during the next four years. Because this is, of course, a competition between us and liberals. But um, Biden is, in my opinion, and this is just my prediction, isn't going to be a popular president just based on what he campaigned on, which was nothing other than unity. Um, I, I got I got word for you. There's or news for you. There's no interest uh, in unifying with people like QAnon conspiracy theorists. Um, you know, some of the like some of the people who are totally defending Donald Trump in trying to steal this election. Like, I don't I don't I'm not interested in unifying with those people, but I am interested in having a message um that's counter to what Biden said while he was campaigning, which is nothing will fundamentally change. No, we need things to fundamentally change and we have the best proposals. So we just need to be organized and and find a way to get that message out. Yeah. It strikes me as that now that Trump is out of power and the Republicans are out of power, that the sort of Tucker Carlson ish populist, right? Josh Hawleyism, they're going to get more, um, they're going to be less shackled by being in power and be able to, you know, say things that they would act 
actually never do while they're in power. They would, they're going to make a much more pointed pitch toward working class people. Um, you know, they're mm-hmm. always kind of, that's, that's always the, I mean, I the segment on the populist right. They're always hamstrung by the fact that at the end of the day, they're on the right and they're the party of capital, uh, you know, as, as the Democrats are, but like the Republicans even more. Um, and now unshackled from, you know, the, the burdens of being, uh, you know, the head of the government, they're going to make a much more pointed pitch, especially in the in in the midst of Biden failures, right, of liberal failures, which is going to happen, uh, obviously, um, that pitch is going to resonate a lot more. So it's on us, really, because the liberals aren't going to do it to counteract that and make make a counter pitch to working class people. Um, that's going to be uh, just a battle that's going to be raging in in the next four years, for sure. Well, and something yeah. a very important contrast that we just saw this year between, on the one hand, with the Bernie campaign in the primary, with Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and California, this massive organizing machine turning people out, getting working class people to the to the uh, the poll or ballot box to the polls, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, to Pokemon um, go to the polls, to Pokemon go to the polls, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. and vote for Bernard. Uh, the incredible success in that apparatus. Uh, when everything else was stacked against him versus uh, just the other night with the Senate races against Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham, where the Democrats poured hundreds of millions of dollars into these campaigns. Crazy. Basically just like all media. It's a media campaign and it didn't turn people out. Uh, These are Mm -hmm. deeply despised politicians and having an alternative on the ballot wasn't enough uh, if it's only done through, uh, you know, social media, TV ads, uh, more kind of traditional media, like, you know, the the big dollar media, uh, we need that. I think, you know, there's a there's an argument to be made that part of the reason why Sanders got stuck at a point in the primary was that he didn't have enough TV ads. But I also think that we should be, uh, you know, optimistic that it really it was this grassroots organizing. It's this door to door canvassing. Uh, that actually is the thing that can get working class people to come out and vote. And so, and moreover, not just vote, but get politically active, right? So that's the, I think when we look to the next four years, I think that's something we'll have to keep in mind of like, we actually do have the beginnings of uh, strategies to actually reactivate working class people politically. And, And the establishment, you know, can win, but it's going to be harder and harder for them. Well, luckily on today's show, we're going to have um, Seth Ackerman on, who is uh, an editor over at uh, Jacobin. And he's going to talk to us about, uh, first of all, how our electoral system came to be the way it is and how um, undemocratic it really is when you compare us to other democracies. I'm really looking forward to that discussion And it's important when it comes to the left's strategy, right? There are a lot of uh, debates going on. I mean, they've been happening since 2016 in regard to how do we move forward as the left? Do we do it through a third party or do we try to change uh, the Democratic establishment? So we'll have that discussion later in the show. Um, Rahm Emanuel will make an appearance in our SALT segment. 
It one of the that was one of the best videos you've shared, Nando. I can't wait to share it with our audience. It's going to be fantastic. And uh, our decode segments, of course, um, are centered around uh, this election and what the takeaways are. So I'm looking forward to that as well. But first, we're going to start off with a little bit of banter, a little bit of banter yeah. about how uh, the international community is responding to Donald Trump's loss. So I'll go ahead and uh, present that story. So <laughs> I love it so much. Now that Donald Trump has lost his reelection bid, his authoritarian buddies are starting to abandon him, which is what you can probably expect from authoritarian buddies. Uh, Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro happens to be one of them. And according to Business Insider and The Washington Post, Jair Bolsonaro on Friday called for humility in the 2020 United States presidential <laughs> election and began to pull away from President Donald Trump. He was quoted as saying, Trump is not the most important person in the world. The most important person is God. I love this so much. Okay, so as you it's guys great. probably already know, we're we're not fans of Jair Bolsonaro. Not a good guy. Very bad. Okay. Um, very, very bad, but I just love, I love that Trump is getting clowned. Like, he is throwing a temper tantrum right now. He is attempting to challenge the outcome of the election. He's claiming that there's voter fraud. And the response from Jair Bolsonaro, who imprisoned his political opponent, who's Lula da Silva, who was widely popular, wildly popular, and was uh, set to win in the elections, um, has like the gall to turn around and say, you know what? In the United States, you guys need some humility. Okay? A little mm -hmm. humility. <laughs> I love it. It's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, first of all, just everything about that statement is just so funny to me. I mean, Jair Bolsonaro is obviously incredibly dangerous uh, human yep. being, but he's also incredibly stupid, which is uh, which makes him kind of funny. You know, like it's funny to watch someone just so unbelievably stupid. Um, and uh, th my Brazilian friend, I was telling you this before, but I, and I, this is unconfirmed because I haven't seen it, but uh, um, so it could be fake news, but. Uh, uh, he keeps on calling Joe Biden, John Biden, you know, like, oh, John Biden, you know, like, you know, Portuguese accent, you know, like, oh, John Biden, fala seria, boa, you know, like, that kind of thing, <laughs> you know, yes. so uh, I look forward to, uh, I mean, I would just love to, I can't wait to like see a meeting between uh, Jair Bolsonaro and John Biden at some like, you know, UN thing or, or whatever, or, or OAS thing and just being like, just watching those two interact would just be would be hilarious to me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, one thing that I'm, I'm curious about is I'm not actually not curious. I'm not going to pretend like I'm curious. Like how, how is Biden going to govern uh, when it comes to foreign policy? I think we have a pretty oh. decent idea how that's going to play out. Um, but also like North Korea and, you know, Donald Trump said he had, he fell in love with Kim Jong-un, which I mean, honestly, I would rather have a, a somewhat diplomatic uh, relationship with North Korea, or I would rather have like the scary situation that we experienced in the beginning of Trump's term. Um, you know, I, I would rather avoid that and have like whatever it is that we have right now, which is, okay, tensions aren't escalating. We're not about to engage in war with North Korea. Um, but, you know, how is how are these types of people on the international stage going to react to a Biden presidency. I guess that's what I'm curious about. Biden, I think we can predict. What's unpredictable is how the Kim Jong-uns of the world are going to react. 
Well, I mean, and I, I honestly, what I also wonder is how, if any of these kind of um, very problematic liberal impulses that emerged in Trump during the Trump era sort of come home to roost. And I'm talking about chauvinist, like uh, aggression towards Russia, aggression towards North Korea, you know, because Trump was kind of friendly with Kim Jong-un, which I personally think is necessary. Like dialogue with North Korea is a good thing. Like stop yeah. it with like this bullshit, you know, like it's a good thing. Um, and because liberals hated Trump and I understand they just opposed everything he did and, and, um, and were like being more aggressive towards North Korea than they probably should have been. And will that kind of uh, impulse and trajectory continue? Um, wh- what will happen with Russia? You know, like, will there be more aggression towards Russia? Um, what will happen with Iran? Like, if there is a sort of rapprochement with Iran, um, will the Iranians trust the United States to fulfill the their agreements? You know, I mean, would you yeah. make a deal with someone that just keeps on reneging on the deal? <laughs> you know, no. like you agree to the deal and then they're like, oh, yeah, by the way, no, those three things we agreed on, we're not we're just not going to do it anymore. Um, I think we can predict yeah. probably like, you know, yeah. So all those things I mean, are the open Iran questions. nuclear deal. The Iran nuclear deal, in my opinion, was absolutely one of Obama's achievements. And the fact that Donald Trump ripped that nuclear deal up, and mind you, it was a nuclear deal not just between the United States, but between the United States, Iran, and a number of other countries, European countries, that wanted to uh, withhold that deal. They didn't want to pull out of it, and they were upset that that Trump did this. And of course, Trump uh, ramped up uh, war rhetoric, uh, regarding Iran. I'm glad that we didn't actually engage in war, but those sanctions that he, uh, re-implemented and also added additional sanctions to, I mean, it's been a disaster for civilians in Iran. Um, it has been especially disastrous during the pandemic. And I don't know if Biden is going to come in and even attempt to negotiate another, uh, Iran nuclear deal. You get what I'm saying? Well, re- so I'm, I'm a little yeah, no, worried totally. about that. Well, remember that uh, the sanctions on Iran, the sanctions bill uh, that passed in the Senate for Iran had unanimous, uh, basically Democratic support, except for Bernie Sanders, yep. because it was tied to sanctions on Russia. You know, that was where the anti-Russia hysteria from the liberals became a huge problem in that they tied these new Iran sanctions to the Russian sanctions. And every single Democrat voted for it, undermining their supreme leader, Barack Obama's chief foreign policy uh, initiative. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that the Iranians aren't stupid. Like they 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 want they read about American politics just like you and I do. Like they have people who do that, and they're not they're not like these, you know, crazy backward uh, people. They understand this these dynamics very well, and so they won't. I I don't suspect that they will trust a Biden administration any more than they would trust a, Bi- a Trump administration. Um, so again, a lot of these you know a lot of these things are open questions. Um, What's going to happen, especially in, in the realm of foreign policy? I mean, I, I whether whether there's going to be um, a lot of these kind of uh, the, the sort of liberal um, chauvinism, the sort of liberal interventionism is going to be uh, more or less. And I guess it, it'll depend on how much opposition there is from the left. Um, that's what that's will that was is the only thing that could potentially hamstring a Biden presidency because the Republicans are not going to do the same thing 
that the liberals do, which is like oppose, uh, you know, they're, they're not going to like oppose something just because Joe Biden does it in the realm of foreign policy, like everything domestically mm-hmm. they will. But if but like if there is some sort of aggression to uh, uh, a foreign power, the Republicans are going to get on board like two seconds. Oh, for sure. For sure. I totally agree with you on that. I mean, that was the one interesting dynamic uh, between Donald Trump and uh, Republican congressional lawmakers, because uh, congressional lawmakers always have an appetite for war because they're funded by uh, private contractors who want to continue um, either their interventions abroad or uh, continue keeping troops in countries like Afghanistan. I remember when military generals started speaking out against Donald Trump when he said that he wanted to pull our troops from Afghanistan. And so uh, the one thing about Trump, even though he was buffoonish, even though he was incompetent, even though he absolutely bungled the response to coronavirus, is that he at least understood that Americans do not have an appetite for war. They want to bring the troops home. Yeah. They do not want these um, you know, interventionist actions abroad. And what Biden represents is just this old paradigm, a uh, long running paradigm in the United States of, hey, we got a war means money. We need to do this. Uh, and our private military contractors fund our campaigns. Let's go for it. And it's so damaging to um, our federal budget, of course. It, it's damaging to people's lives, both you know our troops and civilians abroad. And... Um, yeah, it's it's pretty terrifying when you think about it. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see how it all plays out. For now, though, um, I think it is important to do a little bit of a postmortem and take a look at how this election went down. But before we do it, I think yes. we have a verso read. Let's do it. We do. You know, because Anna, much like our elected leaders are funded by the military contractors, we on this show are funded by Verso Books. It's almost November, and that means new Verso Book Club picks. Well, it is November. It's not almost November. It is November. What am I doing? It's November. Uh, It's November, and that means new Verso Book Club picks. Join the Verso Book Club. I'm like Ron Burgundy. I'll read whatever's in in, in front of my face. Uh, Join join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off all books for as long as you are a subscriber. To celebrate 50 years of Radical Publishing, each member tier is 50% off for the first three months. The reader tier is only $5 a month and includes all of Verso's ebooks. That's 18 ebooks in November. Can you read 18 ebooks in November? That's a challenge. Okay, Comrade tier is $20 a month, and if you join in November, you'll get Automation and the Future of Work by Aaron Bananov. Benanov. Benanov. Feminist International, How to Change Everything by Veronica Gago. Critical Encounters, Capitalism, Democracy, Ideas by Wolfgang Streak. And The Corona Crash, How the Pandemic Will Change Capitalism by Grace Blakely. Mm, Benanov. Love it. Benanov. Benanov. I love that name. Um, uh, Verso's great. Everyone should check them out. And yeah. by the way, if you're watching this live um, on YouTube, please click on that little bell because you'll get mm. notified every time we uh, post uh, new content and uh, share this stream. That's one of the best ways to get the word out about this show. Um, and please uh, send us your super chat questions. We'll take some of them at the tail end of the show. I remember this time. 
All right. Well, Nando, we have some thoughts about the election, how it went down, how Joe Biden campaigned. Uh, so I'll go ahead and uh, share my decode with you all. Um, and it, it it's all about how Democrats have learned all the wrong lessons. Um, and we should be concerned about that. So now that Joe Biden is the person who won the presidential election. Uh, it's been finally announced by all the major networks. Uh, he has beat Donald Trump. Donald Trump has not been reelected. But here's the issue. Joe Biden won by razor thin margins in some of these key battleground states. And it was certainly too close for comfort for me, too close for comfort for everyone who was paying attention to the election on election day. Uh, in fact, I went to bed that night thinking that Joe Biden was definitely going to lose. And I was pretty furious at how the Democratic establishment propped him up. But luckily, he did win, although, again, with razor thin margins in key battleground states. Now, in the age of the Lincoln Project, unfortunately, the Democratic Party has morphed into something that does not represent what the American people need and what the American people want. And I think that was abundantly clear in the way that Joe Biden campaigned. Now, look, the common argument that we've heard uh, by these well-paid media pundits is that, well, we have a race problem in this country. And to be sure, we do have a race problem in this country. But racism cannot be the only thing that explains why Donald Trump came so close to getting reelected. I think that that unfortunately uh, puts the onus on the electorate and prevents any type of important in-depth analysis of our candidates. And we do need to take a look at Joe Biden, what he campaigned on, and why it is that he came so close to losing to a candidate who has been a complete and utter disaster during a pandemic. I mean, we have more than 237,000 Americans dead as a result of Donald Trump bungling his response to coronavirus. And the fact that Joe Biden came so close to losing I think communicates something that we need to talk about. So again, common argument that we've heard over and over again as is that uh, voters in America are racist and that's what it boils down to. Now, I want to be clear in that Trump's racism and racist rhetoric certainly wasn't enough to turn these voters off. But I don't think that is the reason why all of these people ended up voting for Donald Trump. In fact, uh, Donald Trump uh, gained a considerable amount of support among uh, minority voters. Uh, if we take a look at black Trump voters, if you look at 2016, um, about 8% of black voters accounted for the votes that Donald Trump was able to bring in. In 2020, that number jumped 4% to 12%. So 2016, 8%, 2020, 12% of the black vote. If you break it down by gender, um, and honestly, this was pretty shocking for me, uh, when you look at black men in the 2020 election, 18% of them voted for Trump, and uh, 8% of black women voted for Donald Trump. Here's another stat that'll shock you. Donald Trump was able to bring in the highest percentage of the non-white vote for a Republican candidate since 1960. So to say that this is all about racism, I think it just gives you this very simplistic, knee-jerk, black and white answer, when again, there are other issues at play. We really need to do an in-depth analysis on Joe Biden and where he fell short. And I'm sure that these Zerlina Maxwells of the world are rolling their eyes and they hate these types of conversations, 
but it is important. So Democrats, I'm going to be clear, have taken the black vote for granted. Now, in the general election, there was this ridiculous narrative about how Joe Biden is this great unifier, whereas Donald Trump is this horrendous racist guy. But remember, Joe Biden is the one who passed criminal justice reform. I'm sorry, Joe Biden is the one who uh, did not pass criminal justice reform, but passed the crime bill in the 1990s, which imprisoned an entire generation of black people, whereas Donald Trump did pass criminal justice reform. The beginning of the Democratic primary uh, started with Joe Biden getting confronted by Kamala Harris, his now VP, uh, for his views on busing and how he was so willing to work with the most racist Republicans decades ago in order to defeat busing bills. You think that black people just forget about that? No, that is an issue. And if uh the campaigners, the surrogates for Biden go out there and they pretend as though it doesn't exist. It doesn't mean that it's erased from the record. It still exists. And so the Democratic Party has, in my opinion, for several election cycles, exploited social justice issues in order to rally the black vote. But when push comes to shove, What do they do when they're in power? Do they actually pass criminal justice reform? Do they do anything about the disgusting water situation in Flint, Michigan? Do they do any of that stuff? No, they don't. Flint, Michigan is still dealing with unclean water. And that is a problem. You can't just pretend like you care about these issues and then turn around and abandon the people who voted for you as soon as you're in a position of power. And we've seen that happen over and over again. And so these inequalities um, that are fueled by neoliberal ideology persist. And it, it is a real problem. And Americans are feeling the consequences of that. Americans are certainly feeling the consequences of that right now as the pandemic rages on. Tens of millions of Americans are still unemployed. And we still haven't seen another round of stimulus This time around, the party has done the exact same thing that uh, we saw during Hillary Clinton's campaigning in 2016. Uh, They decided to uh, ignore the economic issues that speak to a broad base of voters. And instead, they focused on nonsense like how we need to unify as a country. That was literally the only significant message coming out of the Biden campaign. Here's a little taste of it. I'm going to bring all these interests together, peaceful protesters, police chiefs, police officers, the police unions, as well as the civil rights groups in the White House and sit down and decide what are the things that need to be done to improve and help police officers. I'm the only one who's talked about increasing police budgets. I'm the only one who's talking about increasing police budgets. Biden, if you paid close attention, campaigned as a moderate Republican. And it is disastrous to have someone who both admits that climate change, for instance, is a is a real problem, is a real threat to our existence. But then on the other hand, uh, defends fracking vociferously on the debate stage. I think that's a huge issue. Uh, Biden's campaign failures were also uh, reflected in down ballot races, which resulted in Democrats failing to take control of the Senate. And several Democratic incumbents also lost their reelection bids. As Ken Klippenstein, a reporter from The Nation, put it, when you frame your campaign as a narrow referendum on Trump, as opposed to his party's governing philosophy, defeating Trump, but not the Senate GOP, seems like a natural outcome. And honestly, I couldn't agree more with Ken Klippenstein. I mean, we've talked about this on the show. 
Biden is going to skew or slant his political policies in the direction of which group essentially helps him materially with his candidacy, with his election, with this election. And that's the Lincoln Project. These are never Trump Republicans, Republicans from the Bush era who have no interest in Medicare for all, who have no interest in doing something about income and wealth inequality in the country, who have no interest in doing anything uh, substantive when it comes to police brutality or racial tensions in this country. But they do want to get Trump out of office. And that's one of the reasons why Biden's whole message was just this superficial, hey, we need to unify uh, nonsense, while at the same time supporting the same types of Republican policies that you would see in a Bush administration, policies that support fracking, policies that don't do enough when it comes to climate change. Now, to give you a sense of how much this hurt Uh, down-ticket candidates. House Democrats, for instance, lost seven seats in battleground districts, including in South Carolina, New Mexico, and Iowa. Democrats also lost two seats in South Florida, including one that was hardly on their radar, which some Democrats blame on the potency of socialism attacks in the Cuban-American stronghold. So what they're referring to there is Representative Shalala from Florida, who uh, lost her re-election bid. Uh, No one saw that coming. And of course, Democrats have taken the wrong lessons uh, from that loss. They think, oh my gosh, they called us socialists. And that's why we're hurting so much right now in these congressional races. But here's the thing. Republicans are going to call you socialists no matter what. Republicans are going to call you whatever they want, whenever they want, whether there's evidence or no evidence. They did that with Obama. They've done it with pretty much every Democratic candidate. They do it with their political opponents because they don't care about what the truth is. They don't care what you've campaigned on. They don't care what you stand for. If they think calling you a socialist is going to hurt your chances of getting elected or reelected, they will call you a socialist. That is what they do. The way that you fight that is by, first of all, how about some offense politics? We never see that with the Democratic Party. But more importantly, you fight that by having a clear, consistent message that communicates policies that are widely popular in this country, that resonate with a broad base of voters. Because honestly, when it comes to name calling, I would argue that the electorate doesn't care about that if what they're hearing from the candidate is something that actually appeals to their material needs and interests. And so in response, Democrats uh, blame their failures on the left. And of course, we saw that coming. Democratic Representative Abigail Spanberger criticized some of her fellow Democrats for support of defunding police departments after a string of deaths of black people during arrests or shootings by law enforcement personnel. Spanberger, let me give you more, on the Democratic caucus call said, We lost races we shouldn't have lost. Defund police almost cost me my race because of an attack ad. Don't say socialism ever again. Need to get back to the basics. And apparently she was yelling as she was communicating this. Now, I would argue that uh, defund the police is not necessarily something that's closely tied to socialism, right? I would argue that... uh, People who identify as democratic socialists in this country are supportive of that movement. But what I do find interesting is that Abigail Spanberger, who is part of a party that exploits social justice issues only for election purposes, is now saying that we need to abandon 
social justice issues. We need to abandon talking about racism in America uh, because it hurt us in our elections. Okay, so then what are you going to focus on if you also refuse to talk about the economic issues that are relevant to Americans' lives today? They're setting themselves up for disaster. And luckily, Representative Rashida Tlaib did respond to this. Tlaib saying, before we make painful statements, we need to wait and see how the numbers come down. Feels like I'm being asked to be quiet and we need to appeal to certain people. And that's not right. She also said, and this is important, they called Obama worse. They called they called him a Muslim, a socialist. You can blame these words, but if it wasn't on BLM, would have been something else. And she's absolutely right about that. If you can recall back in 2008, Hillary Clinton released an image of Barack Obama wearing a turban. She did this during the Democratic primary in 2008 uh, in an attempt to defeat him. But guess what? It did not work. Why didn't it work? Well, because Obama actually had a message that appealed to voters. And in fact, he won states that Joe Biden didn't even come close to winning. So, um, Kale, I'm going to skip ahead and go to the first Obama video because I want the audience to remember what Obama campaigned on in 2008. This is his speech kicking off his candidacy in 2008. Let's take a look at what his message was. For the past six years, we've been told that our mounting debts don't matter. We've been told that the anxiety Americans feel about rising health care costs and stagnant wages are an illusion. We've been told that climate change is a hoax. We've been told that tough talk and an ill-conceived war can replace diplomacy and strategy and foresight. And when all else fails, when Katrina happens or the death toll in Iraq mounts, we've been told that our crises are somebody else's fault. We're distracted from our real failures and told to blame the other party or gay people or immigrants. And as people have looked away in disillusionment and frustration, we know what's filled the void. The cynics, the lobbyists, the special interests who've turned our government into a game only they can afford to play. Well, Obama actually went on to uh, beat Hillary Clinton in the primary, of course, uh, but he also went on to win 365 electoral votes in 2008. Gee, I wonder why. I wonder why uh, a, a man, a biracial man with the name Barack Hussein Obama was able to win both the popular vote and the Electoral College uh, by such a wide margin uh, in 2008. Maybe it had something to do with his message. His message was about the bread and butter issues that Americans care about, the issues that impact their lives every single day, the issues that the Democratic Party has actually completely abandoned. Uh, since then. And to be clear, as many of you already know, uh, campaign Obama was very different from President Obama. So while he campaigned on that message, uh, he then went on to bail out Wall Street while refusing to bail out Main Street. Uh, many Americans were left behind economically. And that anger, unfortunately, did fester, which led to someone like Donald Trump eventually getting elected. Uh, but again, his message in 2008 was one that focused on the inequalities that make Americans' lives so miserable. And uh, when he ran for re-election again, uh, Obama decided to tap into very similar messaging. Take a look. The challenge we faced for over a decade is that harder work hasn't led to higher incomes. 
It's that bigger profits haven't led to better jobs. Governor Romney doesn't seem to get that. He doesn't seem to understand that maximizing profits by whatever means necessary, whether through layoffs or outsourcing or tax avoidance or union busting, might not always be good for the average American or for the American economy. Why else would he want to spend trillions more on tax cuts for the wealthiest Americans? So as you guys know, in 2012, uh, he was able to beat Mitt Romney, uh, receiving 332 of the electoral votes. And it was a populist economic message. It appeals to people, again, because it has to do with the issues that impact their lives every single day. But unfortunately, again, in the age of... uh, the Lincoln Project and these never-Trump Republicans moving over to the Democratic Party, Democrats have largely abandoned this message. They've abandoned these issues, and it is hurting them. What's also hurting them is their unwillingness to acknowledge their mistakes, their, their unwillingness to learn any valuable lessons, both from 2016 and this current election. And so if you look at polling, and I think that this polling is important, Even when it comes to conservative voters, many of them want the policies that were proposed by a candidate like Bernie Sanders. Here's an example from September 30th of 2020, just a few months ago. Uh, The poll indicated that more Americans on both sides of the political spectrum want a higher wage, higher minimum wage. It's not that hard. It's not that hard. Did Biden campaign on increasing wages? No. He had something in his website about it. He wants to increase the wage to $15 an hour. But did he actually campaign on it? Was it an issue that was front and center in his campaigning? It wasn't. Let me give you more. Um, The same survey found that before COVID-19 hit, 48% of people who identify as Republicans said they wanted a higher minimum wage. Now nearly 62% of GOP supporters said that's a good idea. So even Republican voters want higher wages. And all you need to do is look at states like Florida, which uh, rejected Biden. They uh, voted for Trump. But when it came to a ballot initiative to increase the minimum wage, it won overwhelming support by voters in Florida. These are issues that matter to people across the board. But Biden didn't decided he didn't want to campaign on it. Um, so what about health care? What we've heard from uh, corporate Democrats is that, oh, no, Medicare for all is a campaign killer. We can't do it. They're going to call us socialists. Oh, my God, what are we going to do if they call us socialists? Well, 56 percent of Americans think providing access to affordable health care coverage for all Americans is the responsibility of the federal government and two thirds favor the creation of a national government administered health insurance plan similar to Medicare for all. Uh, that would be available to all Americans. But the Democratic Party, again, has gone on to learn all the wrong lessons from this recent election. According to Politico, Pelosi and her top lieutenants had a stark warning for Democrats on Thursday. Swing too far left, and they're all but certain to blow their chances in the Georgia runoff that will determine which party controls the Senate. So just to give you some context on what that uh, election is or what that race is, uh, GOP Senator David Perdue is expected to face off against Democratic challenger John Ossoff and GOP Senator Kelly Loeffler will take on Democratic candidate Raphael Warnock. 
But honestly, Pelosi doesn't even need to cite this excuse for why she doesn't want the left to have any type of influence within the party. She doesn't believe in what leftists want. She doesn't believe in delivering what Americans need. And I think that was abundantly clear in how she failed in passing another round of stimulus for the American people during this devastating pandemic. Also, uh, I got to give you the statement from Jim Clyburn, who says, if we're going to run on Medicare for all, defund the police, socialize medicine, we're not going to win. That's what he warned during a caucus call. Now, uh, no mention in this political article about how Jim Clyburn is mostly funded by pharmaceutical companies and the private insurance industry, and so he knows where his bread is buttered, and that's where his priorities are, fighting against widely, wildly popular uh, policies like Medicare for All, because that's what his donors want him to do. So I think we really need to take a step back and understand that not only are Democrats learning the wrong lessons from this election— They have a vested interest in learning the wrong lessons. They don't want to upset their donors. They want to keep having that campaign money flow in from the private insurance industry, from all these corporations who want to keep their taxes low. And so they will fight the left as hard as they possibly can. And I think anyone who disagrees with that statement is being incredibly naive. The question is, will the left over the next four years organize effectively enough to provide the right solutions, the right answers to a failed Biden presidency? Because I have no doubt that Biden will refuse to do what's right in tackling inequality in the country, in doing something about police brutality in this country. I have no doubt that he will do nearly nothing when it comes to climate change. And we're going to feel the consequences of that. We need to organize. We need to understand power. We need to stop nitpicking and moralizing, which turns off voters across the board. And if we focus, hyper-focus on the bread and butter issues and how our solutions are the best, I think we can win. I think we can primary Kamala Harris uh, in, in four years. But we need to have a clear, strong message, and we need to fight almost in a militant way to get that message out there. And most importantly, we need to know our enemies and why they're our enemies. We are not going to be able to work with corporate Democrats. Corporate Democrats, again, have a vested interest in fighting us. So it's time that we effectively fight back. I love that you're. Uh, I love that you're already talking about primary and Kamala Harris in four years. Like we have we're to. Just assu- we, we're well, just assuming that it's going to be Kamala and not and not Biden in four years. <laughs> he said it. Biden says that he doesn't want to run um, after yeah. his first term is up, and so that puts uh, Kamala Harris in the you know in the position. They always to run say against that though. Whoever... If he's yeah, still alive, I mean, he's not going to. That, that's resign. the thing. Biden's like. Hanging in there, I guess. But I don't know. We'll see what happens in four years. The presidency is is tough on yeah. presidents, like physically. Yeah. Um, so we'll see how it all plays out. But look, I, I, let me also note, it is historic that we have the first female, um, you know, and she's also black uh, vice president. I don't want to take away from that. But for me, and I guess this gets me in trouble time to time. I think that representation matters, but it also matters that we have the right representation policy-wise, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, and that's where I stand on that. I'm not trying to take away from how historic the moment is, but 
that moment being historic is not going to prevent people from getting evicted from their homes. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, no, totally. And it's just it's it's infuriating to see Jim Clyburn, uh, for example, for, who is the who is one of the most responsible people for destroying Bernie Sanders, by the way, um, and to saying that if we run on Medicare for all, we'll lose. If you look at the actual results, um, Democratic like this is a tweet from Jonathan Cohn, uh, Democratic co-sponsors of Medicare for all. All won in in swing districts. All won the reelection campaigns. Jared Goldman in Maine won his reelection campaign, uh, despite the fact that he's in a uh, Republican plus two district. And Kirkpatrick, Kirkpatrick in Arizona, Mike Levin in California, Katie Porter in California, all won reelection reelection, despite being in swing districts or in districts that that lean Republican. Um, yep. and they're, they're literally on the, they're co-sponsors of Medicare for all. Um, they're yep. not like Bernie Kratz by any stretch of the imagination. They're, you know, make Katie Porter is kind of like a, like a bold progressive type person, but the other ones are just kind of standard Dems who've just signed on to Medicare for all. Um, and it didn't kill them in these swing districts. So like that narrative is just completely wrong. It just has not supported by any, any sort of data at all. Um, and it's, it's incredibly frustrating and, and then the other thing that I wanted to react to in, uh, from your commentary was watching all these speeches that Democrats love to do about unity. Um, Obama did it, you know, like the famous there ain't no blue America, red America. There's just the United States of America. And I get that that impulse from like a, a presidential nominee, you want to be the president of all Americans and stuff like that. Um, and Biden did that as well. You know, like I'm not going to like, you know, be super mean to Republicans and all that stuff. And um, I get that impulse, but the problem with that kind of rhetoric in, uh, especially in today's time in which the country is so polarized and divided is that when you promise unity and then unity doesn't happen, mostly because there's another thing called the Republican party who understands that their strategy needs to be full on confrontation and undermining of the democratic party agenda at all times on all fronts mm -hmm. forever um, is that then unity is impossible. So then you failed on your own terms, right? You, you have not united the country. I mean, people like one of the, if you look at voters disillusionment with Obama, um, uh, a lot of them outside from the fact that he didn't deliver on any of the sort of economic populism that he ran on um, was that the country felt more divided than ever. And because yeah. he ran on, on unity, he failed on those terms, right? So he failed. You know what I mean? In that sense. So the Republicans understand that they need to be confrontational all the time. They never, ever, ever, Republicans never, ever, ever, even rhetorically reach out to Democrats. Like they, you know, it's like the Democrats are saying, yeah. like, I love to work with Lindsey Graham or I love to, you know, he's my friend in the Senate and we can get things done or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Like that does not flow in the opposite direction ever. It's like, yeah, you know, I loved John McCain or I love Lindsey Graham or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Like Diane Feinstein hugging Lindsey Graham after the, the Amy Coney Barrett nominations. Whereas then the Republicans turn around and it's like, uh, yeah, Hillary Clinton eats children. And, uh, you know, the Democrats are all Marxist uh, demons who rose up from a sulfur pit in the ground. And it's like that disconnect is just so jarring to people. Um, so, yeah, that's the problem is like politics no, is about conflict. Yeah. Yeah, and it's 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 not just jarring, it's infuriating. Because what yeah. it does is it draws a false equivalency between um democratic voters and really think about what and I'm not saying all of them, but what's what's pretty 
prevalent in the Trump side of the electorate. I mean, the insane QAnon conspiracy theorists, like, how are you going to tell me that, oh, we need to unite with this group of people who go around calling their political opponents pedophiles? That's what they do. (laughs) That's how they try to destroy people. They destroy their political opponents or attempt to by calling them pedophiles with no evidence. There's no legitimacy behind those claims. Like, how, how are you supposed to unite with those people? So it's not, I, I don't care about uniting. I'm not interested in that. Mm-hmm. But what, what I do want to draw more attention to is that there are issues that unite us, right? There are issues yeah. that I think most Americans agree on. We all want the same things. We all want to be able to comfortably pay our bills. We want to be able to have a good time with our families. You know, we want to be able to, you know, work in a way where it's not completely taking over our entire lives. We want to be able to have one full-time job instead of have like five part-time jobs in this like ridiculous gig economy. People want the same things. They just want to have happy, comfortable lives. And the fact that the Democratic Party has abandoned that and instead pursued this avenue of we're going to go around judging everyone as mm-hmm. racist, homophobic, sexist, uh, whatever. And then and then what do they do once they're in positions of power? Do they do anything to improve the lives of various minority groups who have been dealing with discrimination and inequality? No, they don't. And it's become very clear to them that their votes have been taken for granted. And so, again, I go back to Abigail Spanberger, who's like, no, don't talk about defund the police. It hurt me. Maybe you're a sucky candidate. She Maybe was a CIA agent. Well. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> how about you take some personal responsibility instead of crying about, again, incredibly popular policies that you didn't even campaign on? Yeah. Quit your crying and your moaning. Republicans are going to call you names. Welcome to adulthood. Grow yeah. up. And try to find an effective campaign strategy that speaks to the issues that people care about. She didn't do that. So she doesn't get to whine about it during a Democratic caucus call. Anyway. And the, you know, and this idea that what to, to, in order to defuse Republican attacks, you have to become more Republican. It's just so absurd on its face because they're always going to prefer the real thing. They're always going to prefer the real thing. You know, like... Amy McGrath is basically a Republican who ran against Mitch McConnell, right? Amy McGrath is basically a Republican in every single thing that she stands for. Every, like she is even more to the right than like someone like Joe Biden or whatever. She is just a she's a Republican with a Democrat label attached to her name. Okay, why would a voter in Kentucky vote for Amy McGrath over Mitch McConnell if they believed in Republican policies? If they believe in Republican policies, Mitch McConnell is the most effective Republican legislator of all time, probably. Like, no one has delivered more Republican policies for uh, their base than Mitch McConnell. So why would anyone vote him out uh, to replace her, to replace him with a, a worse Republican? You know, like, no, that's just not going to work. It's so, so dumb. It's so dumb. It's so it's, dumb. But again, they've learned the wrong lessons. And I... Look, maybe we'll have a little bit of a breather uh, in regard to the chaos we've experienced over the last four years, but we should be worried about the midterm elections, and we should certainly be worried about 2024, Uh, because if this is the lesson that they took away, if they think the 10 never-Trump Republicans who exist in this country are... Uh, you know, indicative of what the Democratic electorate wants, we're in for a world of trouble. There's no question. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. But anyway, you uh, have your own thoughts, Nando. I so, do. Uh, I do. I and they're not, they're not too dissimilar to yours, although I want to focus, I want to kind of laser focus a little bit on Florida, my home state. Okay. Well, guys, we've had the election that we've all been waiting for. And I don't know about you guys, but I feel like shit. I mean, I'm obviously relieved that Trump is out, but I just can't feel much in the way of like actual joy. I mean, the results are pretty grim. It's going to be a weak Biden presidency with likely a Republican Senate, although that may change, which means nothing will happen and will likely continue our steady decline into neoliberal hell. But there was one small bit of satisfaction for me because I got to say, I told you so. You see, last week on this very program, I warned that this course around the election was all wrong and that all signs pointed to Latinos, the fastest growing demographic in America, swinging dramatically to the right. After four years in power, Trump is actually improving his standings with minorities. I mean, you may be saying to yourself, Nando, I've been obsessively following the discourse, refreshing Twitter every two seconds for four years. Trump is a blatant racist and homophobe uh, and xenophobe, probably homophobe, xenophobe. And he hates people of color. It can't possibly be true that he's actually doing better with blacks and Latinos. Well, it's true. And lo and behold, that did happen. That did happen. Catching all of the punditocracy way off guard. You see, in Texas, for example, 41% to 47% of Hispanic voters voted Trump in several heavily Latino bordered counties in the Rio Grande Valley region, a Democratic stronghold typically. In Florida, Trump won 45% of the Latino vote, an 11-point improvement from his 2016 performance. This came, shockingly, despite the fact that Joe Biden did this bit of inspired Latino outreach on the campaign trail. I just have... One thing to say. Hang on here. <laughs> All right. There you go. Dance a little bit, Joe. Come on. That's right. Uncle Joe busted out Luis Fonsi's monster 2017 hit, Despacito. Sadly, it didn't stop him from bleeding Latino support compared to Hillary Clinton back in 2016. And a lot of the focus has been on Florida, specifically Miami-Dade, where I was born and raised, 305 till I die. The conventional wisdom is that, yeah, that makes sense. They're conservative Cubans who think that anything that is even vaguely left is basically Fidel Castro, who they see as a historic criminal on par with Adolf Hitler himself. Miami-Dade County key to Trump's Florida victory. It's home to a large number of conservative Latinos, unique in the state and country. You know, Miami is, some would say, is Hong Kong, right? The rest of Florida is, is sort of, is kind of connected. Miami's its own thing. It's its own entity. Good to go down as one of the most progressive presidents in American history. A flood of political ads tying Biden to socialists struck fear in many Miami-Dade Latinos who'd escaped communist regimes in Cuba and Venezuela. But is the discourse on the Cuban-American vote actually correct? Well, Dear viewer, you will be shocked to find out that it is not. Of course, it's true that Cuban-Americans are on balance pretty right-wing, but there was there a big upsurge for Trump in 2020? 
Not exactly. According to exit polls, in 2016, Hillary Clinton got 41% of the Cuban vote in Miami-Dade. And in 2020, Joe Biden got exactly 41% of the Cuban vote in Miami-Dade. So it looks like it wasn't an hola cubana that caused Biden to underperform in Miami-Dade. And the problem was not limited to the presidential ticket. Incumbents Donna Shalala and Debbie Mugarsal Powell, both Democrats who represented districts within Miami-Dade County, both lost their House seats to Republicans in races that Democrats did not expect to lose. Debbie Murkasel Powell, by the way, you may recall, is the Democratic congresswoman who kneecapped Bernie Sanders after his incredibly mild comments about the Castro regime. You're calling Senator Sanders' comments absolutely unacceptable. Is Sanders wrong in what he said? Anderson, as the first South American member of Congress, I represent thousands of Cuban-American families that have fled the brutal dictatorship under the Castro regime. And, and yes, they are completely unacceptable. And here is Fernanda Mandi, a Democratic strategist, comparing Bernie's comments about Castro to praising Hitler. Here is partly what Senator Bernie Sanders said Sunday night on 60 Minutes. We're very opposed to the authoritarian nature of Cuba. But, you know, you got, it's unfair to simply say everything is bad. Words that likely will have political repercussions and come back to haunt Sanders, especially here in South Florida. I was horrified. I was aghast. This is coming from a Democratic strategist. Fernan Amandi says such comments jeopardizes Democrats' chances of winning Florida and its 29 electoral votes. It would be akin to suggesting that there was value in the Third Reich because Hitler built the Autobahn. There is nothing to praise about a totalitarian regime in Cuba. Nominate Joe Biden, they said. Bernie was too risky, they said, because he could lose Florida. Well, Joe Biden lost Florida. And Debbie Murkacel Powell, despite her impeccable anti-Castro credentials, lost her seat in Congress. And back in 2018, Democrats lost statewide races they expected to win in Florida for governor and senator. Yet, somehow, despite the fact that Florida and Miami-Dade are clearly trending Republican, and despite the fact that the conventional wisdom says that any left-seeming policies would be toxic in the state because of the dreaded socialist label, Floridian voters overwhelmingly passed a minimum wage hike to $15 an hour, a huge victory for the Fight for 15 movement in the nation's third most populous state. Right now, Florida's minimum wage is $8.56. With Amendment 2 passing, that means Florida's lowest wages across the state will eventually be brought up to $15 an hour. More than 6.3 million Florida voters voted 61% yes to Amendment 2, raising the minimum wage 39% voted no. Yes, the minimum wage increase passed by a whopping 22 points. And in Miami-Dade, where Hillary Clinton won by 30 points in 2016 and Joe Biden only won by 7, and where voters kicked out two incumbent Democrats in favor of Republicans, the mayoral race was won by a woman named Daniela Levine Cava. Daniela Levine Cava will become the first female mayor of Miami-Dade County and the first non-Cuban-American mayor in 25 years. She won by running as a pretty bold, good government progressive endorsed by the SEIU and the Dream Defenders, and she defeated conservative Cuban-American Steve Bovo. So what the hell is going on here? Well, the problem seems to be pretty clear, that the Democratic Party itself has become toxic in large parts of the country. You see, while Biden technically supported the minimum wage, as Anna mentioned, he didn't really campaign on it. 
And the mayoral election for Miami-Dade County is nonpartisan, meaning Daniela Levine-Cava did not have to put the dreaded D next to her name on the ballot. And this dynamic seems to have replicated itself all across our great nation. Things like marijuana legalization passed everywhere it was on the ballot. For the record, Joe Biden refused to support it. In Arizona, voters passed an initiative to tax incomes over $250,000 to give $1 billion to public schools. Oregonians voted for a tax increase to fund universal pre-K. And yet Democrats themselves did very, very poorly in almost everywhere. Democrats expected to win the presidency, retake the Senate, and increase their majority in the House. Instead, according to the New York Times, of the 27 races the New York Times rated as toss-ups, Republicans have won or are ahead in 25 they have won or are leading in race, in nine races Democrats were expected to win narrowly. And the fate of the Senate will come down to a couple of special elections in Georgia after they failed to win seats they thought they'd get in Maine, Iowa, North Carolina, and maybe South Carolina, and maybe Montana. What is evident, therefore, is that the leftist belief that the vast majority of Americans support left-wing economic policy holds up. On election night, a series of screenshots of Fox News' exit polls went viral showing 72% of American voters supported, quote, government-run health care. The problem is that voters simply do not trust Democratic politicians to deliver on any of these things. And can you blame them? Joe Biden did not run on any real issues, and the vast majority of Democratic candidates ran on pure opposition to Trump without putting forth any bold legislative agenda. Despite the fact that, you know, there's this economic crisis that is destroying millions of lives. They did this because they were determined to pitch disaffected conservative voters in the suburbs, and this turned out to be disastrous. But the distrust of Democrats runs deeper than the tactics of this specific campaign cycle. I mean, there are barely any voters alive today who can remember the Democrats delivering anything meaningful to them. Seriously, think of one big meaningful thing that the Democrats have passed in the last 40 years. Obamacare, it did a little bit, but it also pissed off a lot of people. Gay marriage, that was nice, but it wasn't done through legislation. It was done through the courts. And other than that, the Democrats have just been the party that passed NAFTA and cut welfare. So obviously the Republicans haven't offered anything either, which is why our politics has become a pure spectator sport over which people are good and which people are considered bad and what team you're on in the culture war. And that is all that matters. So the strategy of the left has to be one of confrontation with the Democratic Party. Bernie had it right when he called himself an independent. He could credibly distance himself from the horrors of the Democratic Party. And the next crop of Bernie Kratz should do the same. I mean, there are some prominent ones coming into Congress like Cory, promising ones coming into Congress like Cory Bush, Jamal Bowman and Mondaire Jones. Because, you see, the Democrats have become the party of moralizing skulls, the party that says any annoying things like, you people are so stupid for voting against your interests, and don't you believe in science? They've also become the party of radical sloganeering without any substantive transformational agenda. I mean, think of how, like, reparations has become a liberal litmus test that only is enforced in one direction without any real plan to even organize around it. So Democrats do not acknowledge that anything is fundamentally wrong, and they simply chastise voters for being too stupid or too racist racist or too toxic. The Democratic Party cannot fail. They can only be failed. And those things are not good electorally speaking. The left, whether we like it or not, get lumped in with all of that. And so the left cannot become the party of liberalism, but just more.
The pitch has to be simple. A hyper-focus on Medicare for all, labor rights for all, and better wages for all. And that's basically it. Because structurally, the challenges for the left are enormous, and the prospects of the near future seem to be pretty bleak. The Democratic Party has proven more resilient to change from within than a lot of us thought, and that is unlikely to really change. And there may be some opportunities here and there at the local level to rally around candidates like Nithya Raman, who won a city council seat in Los Angeles despite her opponent receiving active support from Nancy Pelosi, Dianne Feinstein, and Hillary Clinton. But the real focus must be, at the end of the day, to revitalize the labor movement somehow. It's old hat at this point, but it's nevertheless true. The only way that anything is going to change is if the working class is organized and powerful. Without that, we are just going to be screaming into the void. And if there's one major criticism of the DSA is that it's too removed from organized labor. And for that organization to have a long-term future and for any hope in this country to have a long-term future, it must change immediately. I love that you mentioned uh, that voters don't trust Democrats to deliver on the economic policies that they every once in a while do campaign on. Um, and I, I want to just quickly remind everyone that while Obama did run his campaigns, uh, you know, s- centering those issues, he didn't deliver. And I think mm. that that does hurt uh, the party. It, it hurts the party because if you're going to campaign on one thing and then you refuse to deliver on it once you have the opportunity to. I mean, remember, in his first term, he had both the House and the Senate. He could have easily, um, you know, utilized that power to pass the kinds of policies that we desperately need today, uh, but yeah. we desperately needed back then. But he just proceeded to uh, engage in the same wars that uh, Bush was engaged in. He expanded on those types of policies. He went on to bail out Wall Street. Uh, many Americans were left behind. And that anger, that resentment uh, remains today. And so there are real consequences to that. And I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the a very sort of troubling uh, example of this was in the UK in the last election with Jeremy Corbyn, in that mm-hmm. he he colla- like his working class support in the north of England collapsed, um, and even though they agreed with all of his agenda, like they you know the voters like again polled like they agreed with like all of the economic policies that he espoused, they just assumed that the Labour Party or really anyone was ever going to deliver something like that. You know, like they, they just, they just don't believe that, that anything could be that government or politics has the ability to improve their lives anymore because it's been so long since that has happened, you know? So the cynicism is so deep amongst the electorate and that's, and it's understandable. Like, I'm not trying to like vote shame anyone here. Like it is understandable. Like that if someone, if some Democrat says, you know, like I'm here to for support middle class families or whatever, and they're like, "Shut up, you're not." You know, like because they're right. Um, so it's 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 a little bit of a chicken and egg situation in which, like, because uh, you know, because the the government doesn't um, offer them anything, uh, people like lose interest in government, and because people lose interest in government, then the government doesn't have any democratic pressure to actually offer them anything, and it's a vicious cycle that just keeps getting worse, worse, and worse, and worse. So um, yeah. something has to happen to break that cycle. Um, and again, it's not going to come from the Democratic Party as it is currently constituated. Um, this is why I'm excited to speak to Seth Ackerman later, because there has to be some other way. You know, and the Democratic Party yeah. has become so toxic. It's just become such a toxic 
vehicle and brand for such a huge amount of the country, um, especially in the places that um, that matter to actually exercise power, which is like weirdly rural America, <laughs> you know, because yeah. because of the way our electoral system is is set up, rural America is overcounted. Okay, you can complain about that, but that's just the reality. So then, therefore, any any sort of left or any sort of progressive thing has to make a pitch to those people because that will um, that will ensure that there is the kind of um, majorities in the Congress and Senate that will allow for something like that to pass. Well, um, I'm looking forward to that conversation with Seth Ackerman as well. Why don't we take a quick break, uh, one or two minutes, and when we come back, Jacobin's executive editor, Seth Ackerman, joins us to help us strategize on how the left can win. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Weekends and Ananda with you. And now joining us is Jacobin's executive editor, Seth Ackerman, uh, to kind of help us, uh, you know, uh, continue doing our postmortem on this election, but more importantly, strategize on how the left can win moving forward, especially given how our electoral politics are structured. Seth, thank you for joining us. Thank you. So let's start off with um, your reactions to the news today. Um, all the major networks announced that Joe Biden has won the general election. Well, I guess at this point, it's not so much of a surprise. Um, my, you know, I think right now there's uh, celebrations going on outside um, where I am uh, in Brooklyn and I'm sure in a lot of other places. Um, I think that at this point, uh, at this point, it's the thing that occurs to me as looking forward is that it has been so long now that the American politics has been um, completely taken over by the, the whole discursive field, the whole sort of mental landscape of Americans when, we, when it comes to politics has been so completely occupied by the figure of Donald Trump and arguments about Donald Trump. He's taken up so much of the oxygen that it's going to be um, it's going it's, it's very hard to predict. It's almost difficult to remember what politics was like before there was. Donald Trump, or even any kind of a figure like him. Um, and it's going to, so there's going to be a new configuration that's, that's I think, impossible to predict now. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of expectation that this is not the end of the Trump era, that a lot of people mm -hmm. are claiming or thinking that there's going to be that, you know, Trump is a figure who's here to stay. He has um, amassed a base that's incredibly loyal to him. And so, you know, we're going to be seeing uh, Donald Trump as an important figure in American politics for years. I'm very skeptical of that. 
I think that, you know, there's never been in American political history a president who has uh, lost re-election and continued to be a central figure in uh, in politics, even within his own party. Um, generally, Americans don't like losers. And, uh, and but more importantly, you know, when a, when a president, it's, it's hard for as a sitting incumbent president to lose re-election. It doesn't happen very often. I think there's only been something like four cases in the last century. Um, when it does happen, it sends a signal to anyone in politics about what is um, a, a promising strategy and what's not a promising strategy. So Trump's defeat is going to, uh, and, you know, the whole circumstances of the election, um, as is always the case in a big election, it it's going to um, uh, impart a lot of lessons that people on both sides and both parties are going to learn, whether they're whether they're accurate or not accurate. Um, and I think one of the things that people are not expecting that I, that I find to be a quite probable outcome is that Republicans will pretty quickly learn the lesson that um, much of what, you know, that Donald Trump's, uh, the Donald Trump approach to politics, um, at least in, in many of its aspects, is, uh, is not a very effective approach. And what I mean by that is, I mean, there are certain elements of the Trump appeal that probably um, are here to stay in some ways. For example, the the abandonment of you know cor- sort of global globalized internationalism, I think, is is here to stay. But then again, that's also become a sort of a bipartisan shift. The Democrats, sort of the Democratic establishment, the Democratic foreign policy establishment, has sort of shifted along with uh, in the Trump era against the idea of engagement with China and this idea that we're going to have um, you know a, a sort of a post Cold War moment that's going to extend forever. Um, so that I think is maybe one element of Trump, the Trump era that's going to stay, but, um, you know, Trump, uh, was constantly shocking and surprising people by saying things and doing things that everyone thought, uh, were, uh, surefire poison, political poison that would, you know, sink any politician. And then he never sank until he did. And so we've now spent four years thinking that we're learning the lesson that you can do these things and get away with it. And maybe even uh, build up such a, a loyal base that you're going to become politically bulletproof. And that illusion has now been punctured uh, in a way that I think we have not yet fully seen the consequences of that lesson being learned. And I think it's going to be learned on the Republican side. Um, that, that's, yeah, that's a that's a that's a fascinating um, perspective. I think you're right. Um, and. I, I kind of love that uh, because it was kind of frustrating to see some of the more um, irresponsible rhetoric and behavior from Donald Trump and how uh, it seemed like he was untouchable. Uh, but you're right. I mean, it is incredibly rare for an incumbent president to lose reelection. And maybe this is, you know, the chickens coming home to roost. Uh, but the globalist message that, that you're talking about is also fascinating because if you can remember in the beginning of uh well, as soon as Biden won the primary and he was uh, campaigning against Trump, uh, they both put out ads where both of them are accusing one another of being too soft on China. Mm-hmm. And that is definitely an issue that Americans should be watching closely. Um, it actually terrifies me uh, because our situation with China right now is very much our own doing. I mean, we we moved all these jobs over there, uh, all of these uh, you know, low paid workers are being exploited there. And then we turn around and say, oh, they're stealing our patents. They're doing this. They're doing that. 
Well, yeah, you gave them the blueprint for all your products and you did that in order to exploit cheap labor. Um, and Democrats are just as guilty of that as Republicans are. But anyway, uh, enough of my rambling. Uh, Nando, did you want to jump in? Yeah, you, you say that the, the Republicans will will learn the correct lessons to um, the collapse of Trump or the, the defeat of Trump, uh, I suppose, because um, he didn't really collapse. He got more votes than in 2016. Um, uh, but as, as Anna pointed out, we're both very skeptical that the Democrats will learn any valuable lessons from their kind of sort of, I don't want to say hollow victory be, because they won the presidency, but they... But they, but they may not win the Senate, or it's looking unlikely that they'll win the Senate. Which, in which case, it's it's not really like a, a, a mandate election. I, I can't remember the last time an incoming president did not have control of the Senate. Um, it's it's been a while. Um, but um, what 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 should be the lessons that the Democrats learn, and will the left? Can we <laughs> play any role in helping them, or, or actually imparting some of those lessons? Well, I think, you know, like I said, uh, there are always lessons that that politicians learn after an election, but they're not necessarily the right ones. They're just the the lessons that seem um, that seem right at the time. Uh, So people often misinterpret things. I I think that whether it's whether they're right or they're wrong, they will and they already have um, learned the lesson. The Democrats have learned the lesson that they that the left is sort of a paper tiger um, that has uh, you know, makes a lot of noise, but doesn't have a, a lot of real electoral heft. They think that by defeating uh, Bernie Sanders uh, and then going on to win the presidency, that they have uh, punctured the whole uh, movement and left wing shift in the in the democratic electorate and democratic politics, democratic discourse. Um, that's why they, I think that that Nancy Pelosi and and her other uh, members of the Democratic leadership had no uh, qualms about immediately right out of the gate. Um, Going, making it clear that they uh, had no patience for uh, efforts to try to push uh, the party or the House leadership to the left. Um, that's the lesson I think that they have learned. I think that we're going to be surprised even by how um, determined they are, I know how convinced they are of that and how they're willing to act on it. But uh, whether that is um, going to be an effective, you know, whether, whether the, the, the actions that they're going to take on the basis of those lessons are, is going to be effective, we're going to see you know, we're going to see in, in part in the midterms. And, um, you know, I, I doubt, and the, the question of, of what uh, the, the actual consequences of those lessons being learned are uh, really depends on what the actual, what the correct analysis of this election is going to be. I mean, why did it, it is, it's so far, it's looking like a very unusual um, pattern of voting. And uh, it's going to be, I think, a while as the votes come in and the analyses happen. Um, data has to be looked at, you know, at, at lower levels, precinct levels. Um, but I think we're, number one, uh, we don't yet really know what the what, what actually happened on election day. Uh, but I do think that there are a couple hints that we can take. Um, one thing that's that you know Joe Biden, in terms of his popular vote share, on paper did not do so badly. In fact, he, he sort of, uh, as far as I can tell, he he did about as well as you would expect on the basis of you know fundamentals of uh, Trump's approval rating. Um, but uh, the mystery, I guess, then, is why down ballot the Democrats did so badly. And, uh, you know, the, the House vote, for example, I think it's shaping up to be um, uh, Democrats as a whole getting something like 0.2 percent more votes than the Republicans, which is which is a really thin margin. If you compare it to the last time 
a Democrat uh, uh, won the presidency for the first time, which was back in 2008, it was um, it was uh, a vastly bigger number. And even in 2012, when uh, Obama won re-election, the Democratic lead in the overall national House vote was uh, something like one or 1.2 percentage points. Um, so there was a really, um, I think, still quite mysterious failure on the part of the Democrats to uh, capitalize on Trump's unpopularity. And, you know, the question is why that is. And all I, all I can point to is, is that uh, Joe Biden clearly won the votes of quite a lot of people who normally would be very hesitant to vote for a Democrat, but were driven by horror at Trump. Uh, to support Biden in this particular case. Those people are not going to be voting for Democrats in the future. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of them, of course, voted for Republicans in, in House races and, and Senate races. Uh, so that was a sort of a temporary cushion that the Democrats got in this race that they are not going to have in future races. And so then what do the Democrats have to fall back on? Their traditional base is is really obviously the, what they uh, what they need, the starting point that they have in any given election. But that base clearly has been somewhat eroded, um, and the evidence is, is clear already, even before all the votes are in, that, you know, as uh, you guys were talking about earlier, uh, there was, um, of course, a big shift to the right, big shift towards Republicans among Hispanics uh, in a lot of places, not everywhere, but in a lot of places. Uh, in addition, uh, uh, black voters, they did. there was no real shift or a very, very much smaller shift uh, to the Republican Party in terms of vote choice. But um, so far, the evidence, I believe, is, is looking that is looking like um, there was a, a turnout gap with uh, uh, black voters uh, turn out, turning out at vastly increased numbers. I mean, this was the biggest increase in turnout uh, in, a, in a presidential election in 100 years. But um, the relative turnout uh, was disappointing. White voters uh, increased their turnout significantly more than black voters. So um, if your traditional base is losing enthusiasm, and I have to say that, you know, it's, it's important to point out that when polls before the election ask people who were vote, you know, who are you going to vote for? But then also, how excited are you about voting for this person? How strongly do you support that candidate? Uh, Trump had a very, very large advantage, something like 12 points, 12 percentage points more likely to uh, his voters to say that they strongly supported their candidate, Trump, than, than Biden voters did for Biden. Um you know, those signs don't look very good for the party um, moving, you know, moving forward. Uh, and then the question is, what do they do about it? Yeah. Yeah. So so I'd like to move on to um, a piece that you wrote uh, titled A Blueprint for a New Party uh, in Jacobin. I thought it was a fantastic piece. And it talked about, you know, this debate that's been raging um b- between members of the left, like people who want a Bernie Sanders uh, presidency. Obviously, we unfortunately didn't get that. And so what's the best way to move forward, especially with a Democratic Party that increasingly or has been increasingly hostile toward Bernie supporters and Bernie-like candidates uh, in congressional races. And so um, I'm going to read a few excerpts from your piece so the audience kind of gets a little taste of uh, what you wrote, but I highly recommend that everyone read the full piece. I I guarantee you, you'll love it. Uh, You write, advocates of third-party politics who back Sanders in the primaries, like Seattle Council member uh, Shama Sawant, Want uh, went on to support Jill Stein's Green Party candidacy. Meanwhile, longstanding opponents of the third party route, like Democratic Socialist columnist Harold Meyerson, have argued that the left should focus on trying to change the Democratic Party from within. Others have called for a different approach, standing neither 
wholly inside nor wholly outside the Democratic Party, but few concrete proposals have been discussed so far. This political moment offers a chance to fill in some of these blanks to advance new electoral strategies for an independent left-wing party rooted in the working class. So you argue that we need to challenge the character of America, like America's political system or party system um, and the repressive laws that undergird it. And so what do you mean by that? Can you elaborate on that a little? Yeah. So the um, the first point to note is that, you know, America has a, has a two-party system, as everybody knows. Um, a lot of people, I think, that have a misconception about why that is. Um, there's a belief that we have a two-party system because we have like a first-past-the-post electoral system. We don't have proportional representation. That's something you, you often hear as like an explanation. Um, so, you know, other countries, they'll have a proportional representation system where if you get, if a party gets, you know, 7% of the vote, then uh, it'll get 7% of the seats in the parliament. And we don't have that kind of system. That's a, a real misconception because the reality is that there are a lot of countries that have first-past-the-post electoral systems. And it's true that on balance, that kind of a uh, of a, an electoral system will tend to uh, reduce the number of effective parties and push things more towards in the direction of a two-party system. But the United States is completely unique in the extent to which uh, two parties completely dominate um, the the political scene. So, you know, if you look, you know, anybody can just go to Wikipedia and look up the um, the vote shares of parties other than like the labor labor or the conservatives in Britain in the last general election, and even more so in the previous general election, uh, in in all the different constituencies, you know, six hundred and fifty or so uh, uh, House of Commons constituencies, and you'll see that there's first of all an enormous number of of quote unquote third parties. In Britain, obviously, the biggest is the Liberal Democrats, or which are, is a party that has roots going back a long time. They used to be one of the two major parties, essentially. Um, but there's a million others, and uh, including a, a few that actually have had a, an effect on the political scene: the, the Green Party, the uh, UKIP. So, what is the effect of that? The effect of that is that um, is that when you have a, 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 a more competitive political system where the two parties uh, feel like they, they're they're at the very least their votes can be sort of eroded from the sides. Um, it forces them to uh, keep an eye on dissident political movements and dissident political ideas. Um, it, it creates the kind of competitive pressure that you would expect. In the United States, we have a history of um, ballot laws, which is not a subject that's particularly sexy or that people tend to focus or tend to spend a lot of time thinking about. But uh, we have going back more than a century, um, a set of very unique laws about who can get on the ballot and how you get on the ballot. And the effect of those laws was intended to and has actually had the effect of making the United States uh, one of the most, probably the most um, purely monolithically two-party system uh, in the world. It's very difficult to get on the ballot. Uh, it's not that third parties don't get on the ballot. It's that the hoops that they have to jump through um, make it so that uh, a third party basically uh, will only get on the ballot if it's made up of people who are willing to basically devote their entire um, lives, careers, and um, all of their party activity to just the, the the task of getting on the ballot. And so you can imagine how effective parties like that are going to be. It's it's you, you get the sort of results that you'd expect. Um, so what do you do in a situation where you have um, you have such a uh, an inability to to exert real competitive pressure on the parties if you're dissatisfied with with where they are you know as we are with the Democratic Party and of course the Republican Party what do you do so uh, we have a substitute for that in theory which is the primary system 
Um, and so we have, uh, it's also unusual, you know, we have competitive primaries that are open to anyone who wants to quote unquote enroll in the party just by putting their, you know, checking a box on their voter registration form and saying they're a Democrat. There's no membership. There's no real membership of a political party in the United States. We don't, you don't become a member of the Democratic Party by paying dues and, um, and going to meetings and having a vote or a say, uh, in anything except for the selection of the candidates. Um, what I uh, proposed in that piece, which was a few years ago, uh, is that the the left could and should um, take uh, take advantage of the primary system, not in the usual, the traditional way, which is um, the way that's sort of encouraged by people who think that the left ought to ought to sort of join the Democrats and change it from within, which is essentially a kind of race by race, candidate by candidate approach. Um, you know, which has been done for, for decades. You have uh, individual progressive or left-wing candidates running in particular races uh, with, the, with the sort of candidate-centered focus. They have their own plan. They have their own profile. Um, so, you know, you've got a lot of people over the years, whether it's like Paul Wellstone back in the 90s or, uh, you know, Ted Kennedy challenging uh, uh, Jimmy Carter. You, you have a history of those kinds of insurgent candidates. Um, but they always um, were assimilated. Their political profile was assimilated into the Democratic Party completely. Uh, there was no, you know, there, Paul Wellstone was Paul Wellstone and uh, Ted Kennedy was Ted Kennedy. There was no um, in lasting institutional uh, continuity that uh, that could help create a, a sort of a third pole or a third political identity that ordinary people could uh, tap into. That's how political ideas spread to large millions of people, most of whom don't spend their whole lives, you know, refreshing Twitter, or thinking about politics, learning about politics. It happens through party identities and party images. That's how people get a sense of what are the different ways you can be political, the different political ideas you can have. And if you um, sort of willingly uh, absorb, if the left willingly sort of absorbs itself uh, and its image into blends into the Democratic Party and, and sort of tries on a case by case, candidate by candidate basis uh, to present alternatives. Those alternatives may be in particular races when you have particularly favorable service uh, um, conditions or you have a very good candidate. They might be able to win an individual seat here and there, but uh, they they don't have the uh, the effect on the electorate of presenting a, an alternative that can actually uh, millions of people can grab onto and, and think of as their political identity. And that creates enormous barriers to actually exerting the kind of competition um, with, the, with the two mainstream parties that in theory, you know, the primary system is supposed to uh, operate. So what I proposed is that we sort of forget about, um, about those barriers and, and create what is in, in most respect a, a political party that is it's a, a private voluntary organization like it, like political parties are in most of the world but not here um that would that would be serve all the functions of parties that would have a mass membership that would uh, have a democratic internal structure uh choose its own candidates have its own program have a, a life and an existence between elections and not just during elections you know organizing people educating people that have debates and publications and all the rest of it um but without necessarily running candidates on third party ballot lines. In fact, that's probably an unwise thing to do. You can run candidates in primaries, but you would have an independent political identity. And so you'd be able to serve, it would be able to serve the same function as, you know, a, a political party in the traditional sense, but which Americans usually think of as it's only a political party if it's got its own separate line on the ballot. I'm saying all we have to do is, is shift our thinking a little bit and realize that that ballot line is actually more of a legal formality than anything else. Uh, ignore the ballot line and uh, plow ahead with 
uh, with an actual party. That was the question is, though, you know, do we have the strength to do that in a credible way? Uh, I, four years ago, I said, no, we don't yet. And I still think that we don't yet. But I think a lot of progress has obviously been made in the last four years. And is is something like what you're proposing, like what DSA is doing, or is what DSA is doing not what you're proposing? I'm, I'm genuinely asking. I, I have no no idea. I think, well, I mean, first of all, the uh, a lot of people in DSA who are involved in the electoral work that they do, um, you know, re- read the article, discussed it, and and uh, it had a, it had an effect. And sort of, in, in fact, I was surprised r- right after it came out uh, to find that it came out right at the moment when there was a big surge in membership, right after uh, the first Sanders campaign. And so those things were going on at the same time, sort of a discussion of those ideas on the one hand, and this big membership surge of DSA, and they ended up getting. Um, you know, connected in a lot of people's minds where a lot of people thought, well, DSA could be, and we can make it into that kind of party. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm skeptical that DSA would be as an, as an individual institution, the right vehicle for that kind of work, the right, the right organization. But what, what has ended up happening and it certainly DSA has not become that. I mean, it's uh, what I, what I was proposing is an actual, uh, an organization that really functions as a party. So, you know, it would, um, it would uh, have, you know, a slate of candidates everywhere at all times. Um, uh, DSA doesn't doesn't really do that. It doesn't have its own uh, program that it requires every candidate to uh, to adhere to. And obviously, it's way too small uh, to have that kind of effect. But um, it was intended by a lot of the people who do that work within DSA, and I certainly see it as a promising avenue in this respect. That it's a sort of a, a test run. It's a trial run. Um, and in the last four years, through the candidacies that DSA in various places, especially here in New York, but, but in many other places as well, uh, have worked on uh, and in many cases succeeded, um, those, the experience that, the, that DSA activists have developed, um, not just with, I mean, number one, with just the mechanics of running a campaign and seeing what, what electoral politics is like and learning how that works, but also sort of the, the broader activists, even people who never work on those campaigns, but who uh, are members of DSA or identify with DSA, uh, there's a sort of a, they're learning how to relate to uh, the political system and to uh, politicians and elections in a way that is outside the two parties, uh, two party identities. Uh, People, the the whole point of DSA running these candidates is that their political profile and identity is associated with DSA much more than with the Democratic Party, even though they're usually running on Democratic Party ballot lines. So it's that experience of sort of shifting people's mental landscape of what the what it means to, to run candidates, what, what a political party is and what it means and, and what the landscape of American politics is, not just a, a landscape of two big poles of Republican and Democrat, but something, you know, more than that. And ha- also having to navigate what that means, you know, what is the what kind of relationship should the left in doing that kind of work have with the democratic party at a rhetorical level, at an actual, you know, legislative level and inside legislatures when people like Julia Salazar in New York state are, you know, working on legislation and trying to build coalitions. How do you do that? So DSA today is not a full scale uh, party or party surrogate that I suggested uh, in that article, but it is um, building the kind of experience and, and, uh, and, 
and um, sort of setting the kind of patterns that would be necessary in the future if that kind of an organization did exist. So I think it, it's a sort of a it's a sort of a run up to that kind of party potentially. So I'm trying to understand how you do this without running into the same conundrum that you know, we've been running into, right? Because our biggest enemies are these corporate Democrats. Um, They'll fight us harder than they'll fight any Republican, that's for sure. And so how do you find yourself as a leftist who's running, right? And, And you're not, you don't end up splitting the vote in a way where the Republican candidate or someone as disastrous or devastating as Donald Trump ends up getting the advantage. Because I feel like that's the issue that we keep running into and um, based on your strategy, I don't see how we would avoid that. Well, I mean, the strategy is mainly intended to avoid that um, by by uh, eliminating the idea that if you're going to have a separate party identity, you have to always run a separate candidate in a general election against the Democrats mm-hmm. and the Republican. So the idea is you can run candidates uh, on in primaries on the Democratic Party in the Democratic Party primary. And avoid a situation where you're always forced to um, to ha- have a potential split vote, you know, to split the vote mm. with Democrats. Um, that's I mean, so. If anything, the the the, the conundrum is not so much um, how to avoid uh, splitting the vote, because you know, running on the Democratic Party, running in a primary, sort of eliminates that that danger. Right. The the danger is really from the other direction. How do you avoid having this entity this, <clears throat> this um, this uh, political uh, profile get completely assimilated into the Democratic Party by running in primaries. Um, that's, I think, the question that uh, balancing those two things, running in, in, a, in a party's primary on the one hand, but maintaining a separate identity on the other hand, those are, that's the main issue, I think, that, that ESA activists working on the electoral field have been sort of navigating uh, much more so than the, than the split vote issue, which is which as long as you run in a primary is not really, a, not really an issue. Okay, gotcha. And um, what about like this idea that say say DSA or another organization, whatever it is, becomes kind of a mass party that actually starts to threaten um, the Democratic Party within, say they they win a few high profile races here and there, um, and all of a sudden start to challenge the, the the sort of power centers. What is stopping the Democratic Party from simply? Changing, changing the rules for their primary system um, and to make it almost impossible for someone from that other party to win? That's a great question. Um, so, uh, I mean, the short answer is that it's obviously not impossible. Um, they could do it or it could be done. Uh, it's a little harder than you would think. For, for one thing, the rules of, uh, of primaries, uh, how they're set up and who can get on the ballot and all those kinds of things, uh, and this is one of the things that makes the United States completely unique in the world. There's no other country that has this kind of system. Um, all those rules are set by state governments, not by the Democratic Party. Uh, there are a few exceptions, um, uh, but you know, they're sort of at the margins aspects in certain states of the process that are sort of delegated to a party organization. But for the most part, you know, the, the primaries are run by the government. That's in itself uh, completely unique. And all the rules are set by state governments. So that doesn't necessarily mean that the rules can't be changed um, to have that effect. But you know, you, then you have to sort of, well, first of all, you have to remember that that would mean that, you know, Democrats control the state legislature and the governorship, and they're able to sort of 
uh, formulated consensus within the party to do this, um, you know, which is not which is not always so easy. But uh, then you have to remember that, you know, they have to deal with the consequences of that. So then what what for, what kinds of things would they have to do in order to accomplish that? And I think it's it, it's a really good question because these are the kinds of situations you have to game out in the future about how the how the mainstream party will respond. The the way they would have to do that is, you know, for example, um, pass a law that says that uh, the state party convention decides who the candidates are, who the nominees are, rather than a primary where anybody can vote. Um, that's the system. That's basically the, the old system from like more than 100 years ago that the primary system replaced. Uh, and I think there's still like one or two states that at least for some offices still don't have primaries, have binding primaries. They still have a state convention that, that makes the decision. But then, you know, from the point of view of the democratic uh, establishment, that creates its own problems. You know, um, if the state convention makes the decision, then I mean, who, who's the state convention? It's the activists who become delegates and and uh, local party leaders, county party activists who get elected in turn as delegates to the state convention. And so in other words, what you've done is you've taken the decision out of the hands of a, a broad primary that anyone can participate in, which gives groups like DSA the opportunity to intervene in the party in ways that the mainstream party doesn't like. But uh, if you would shift that to, you know, making it the party, quote unquote, who gets to make those decisions, then you create an enormous incentive for the left, for DSA, but also really for anybody to try to then take over the party. Right now, taking over the, the party organization of a political, of, you know, the Democratic Party, for example, in any state, uh, there's not much of an incentive to do it because they don't really get to decide very much. But once you make that uh, convention sort of the 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 power the power that gets to decide what the party is writes the program the program then becomes you know really binding decides who the candidates are once the once the party organization becomes actually powerful which it isn't now you're going to have an influx of people trying to take over that party uh hopefully from the left but maybe from somewhere else that's something that i think that the the democratic leadership the mainstream democrats absolutely do not want they like they prefer even as as annoying as it is to have a sort of an open system where, you know, people like in DSA can go and, and, and run their own candidates and um, try to win elections. They prefer that kind of diffuse system, which to a system where uh, it really is just about how many people on the ground you can get into that meeting, you know, uh, to, to, to vote in that meeting. That encourages and it, uh, it strengthens the hands of activists more than anything else. Primaries, at least you can sort of try to buy the primary with money. You know, you buy a lot of TV ads to you know, promote your centrist candidate. That's, that's a relatively good deal for them. Uh, a bad deal is one in which um, all you have to do is have enough activists go to every meeting, take over the party. That's something that they don't want to see. They don't want to have to deal with that. Right now, the state parties, the, the Democratic Party in general, is the bastion of the, the centrists and they like it that way. Yeah. Everyone check out um, Seth Ackerman's piece, a blueprint for a new party. I know that it's a few years old, but I think it's incredibly relevant, uh, you know, following this general election. Seth, thank you for taking the time to uh, speak with us. Hopefully you'll come back soon. Thank you. All right. Uh, so Nando, we got some salt yes. today, and I feel like Let's this this individual is going to be um, a mainstay for our salt segment because uh, you can't help but say incredibly stupid things. Uh, so, Rahm Emanuel 
is uh, giving us some advice on what, you know, Americans should do if they've lost their retail jobs. And to be clear, tens of millions of Americans are still unemployed uh, due to this pandemic. Um, Many people who worked in retail lost their jobs, not only because of the pandemic, but because private equity firms show up, uh, run up a ton of debt, pay themselves giant bonuses, uh, and then shutter the businesses that they claim that they were going to save. And so Rahm Emanuel has advice if you've lost your job as a result of all this stuff. Let's take a quick look at the video. And there's going to be people like a Jay-Z Penny and other retail. Those jobs aren't coming back. Give them the tools. Six months, you're going to become a computer coder. We'll pay for it. And you'll get millions of people to sign up for that. They are not going back to parts of the retail economy. And we need to give them a lifeline to what's the next chapter. Nando. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No, yeah, I mean, yeah, we're just all going to learn to code. We're all going to work for Jeff Bezos as he takes over the entire society of the world. Um, We're all just going to be plugged into the computer um, and just like, you know, a big giant plug right in our face and just feeding into the giant beast that is the new Amazon techno feudalism. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's crazy that Rahm Emanuel, um, I mean, it's not crazy, but it's Rahm Emanuel is just still out there. Um, doing his thing. I mean, he, he, it's, it's hard to overstate just how influential he's been inside the democratic party since the early nineties when he was an advisor to, to Bill Clinton um, in yanking the party um, as far right as possible. I mean, he was the architect of the 2006 uh, wave election that brought in a ton of blue dog Democrats. He then was mayor of Chicago, obviously, um, where he covered up the murder of Laquan McDonald and stuff like that. You know, so he's, he's just a very odious figure. But he he um, he does this thing, which is very hegemonic within the Democratic Party, which is this um, this uh, telling regular people that they have to do more with less. That the Democrats have become yeah. the party of personal uh, responsibility for lack of a better term. And that, you know, Oh, the side of climate change, you gotta do, you gotta, you gotta use the, the, uh, you gotta get rid of the plastic straws. You gotta, everyone should bring their own little metal straw. Oh, you want to, your, your job uh, got offshore or, or whatever too bad. You gotta learn how to code, you know, like the parties that usually dominate in politics are the parties that do not tell people that they have to do more with less are the parties that tell people actually, no, you have to do less with more. You know, that's that was Reagan's big uh, innovation within the Republican Party. You know, the Republican Party was the party of telling people to do less, uh, to do more with less. Um, then Jimmy Carter came in and said, like, you know what? They're right. You do. You people do have to do more with less. And then he got trounced because Reagan was like, no, actually, um, everyone's going to be great. And you're going to you know, you're, you know what I mean, like, just don't have to do less. We're going to cut your taxes. It's going to be easier. You know, so. Th- Getting someone to be um, this idea that they have to like get tough with the voters and tell them like, oh, you know, like if you want to have a better life, you got to do more. That's just poison. It's just absolute poison. Um, it never works. It's never going to work. It's like banging your head against the wall. But Rahm Emanuel is the chief enforcer of the Democratic Party when it comes to that line. Yeah. And I mean, like, he added the part of we'll pay for it, meaning we'll pay for your coding education. But Going to school is not the same as having um, being gainfully employed, you know, having having enough money to uh, provide for yourself and your family Um, and losing your job is so insanely disruptive. So just put yourself in anyone's shoes, someone who's lost their job and you watch a video like that where it's like, 
Well, pay for your education. You'll learn to code. You'll learn to code. Okay, but learn to know. How am I going to pay my easy. bills right now? Yeah, it's well, yeah. You're right. Just that, Every, everything, everything policy wise, is coming from the Democratic Party right now. You're right. It puts the onus on the individual. You. It's never about yeah. yeah it's, it's all about you. Oh, your life is is you know a little difficult right now. It's because of you, right? Sure, yeah. you don't have any actual representation in government. You don't have, uh, you know, elected leaders who want to do something to make your life better. Uh, so you have everything working against you, but it's your fault and you need to do better. Okay. Yeah. Tell, yeah, tell but, it, uh, you know, a 52 year old laid off person to, to learn how to code. I mean, come on, you know, yeah. like it's, you know, it's, it's just such a, it's such a big ask for people. And, and the thing is, even if, okay, say, say, imagine, you know, wave of a wand, everyone learns how to code like in matrix style, you know, you implant the chip in your brain and you learn how to, you know, I know Kung Fu, I can now learn how to code uh, in two seconds. If everyone knew how to code and there was just giant supply of coders, then the wages for coders would collapse, Yeah, you know, because the, the supply and demand, I mean, it's, come on, it's not that difficult. So, you know, this, this idea that you can educate your way out of, uh, or that education is the key to, um, you know, the, the downward, uh, reversing the downward trend in uh, American incomes that has been going on for the last 40 years is not true because if everyone were like that, then, then there'd be an oversupply of those jobs. Like what we need is good quality jobs that um, for everyone, I mean, it's just not, it's not, everyone can't be doing the same exact thing. Like there's millions of things that are need to be done in the society. Um, and there if everyone just few... is coding all day. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you're totally right. And there are very few politicians who understand this and uh, communicate effectively on what needs to be done uh, while also giving people hope. And um, I always love to hear from Bernie Sanders to kind of counter the disgust that I'm feeling by people like Rahm Emanuel. So why don't we watch what Bernie has to say? How much of that can Joe Biden do without Congress? Well, obviously, as Donald Trump has shown us, uh, the power of a pen on executive orders is very significant. And I hope he utilizes that. But I do believe, you know, we talk about bringing a very divided nation together. And there's no question, in a very painful way, sad way, our country is divided. And one way, it's not going to solve all of our problems, not going to solve systemic racism, but one of the ways that we can bring people together is around an agenda that works for farmers in Iowa as well as low-income people in New York City. And there is a commonality of interest that we have. All of us need health care. All of us need decent wages. All of us want our kids to be able to get a college education. For too long, in my view, the Democratic Party has not been as aggressive as it should be in addressing the needs of the working class of this country. And that is why Trump has done so well with those people. It is time for us to expose Trump as a fraud and to address the real needs of working families in this country. And when those people stand up and say, you know what? Yeah, I want my kid to be able to get to college. Yeah, I want my mother to have decent health care and to be able to afford prescription drugs. Yeah, I'm a farmer and I know what climate change is doing to my farm and this country. When we address the real needs of the people of this country, they will come around, they will demand that Congress act. Bernard. Simple message. Yeah. Yeah, man. 
Yeah, not that difficult. Um, of course, the libs are all smearing him for being some sort of proto-racist and for that comment. I mean, come on, like who can disagree with like who can disagree with anything that he said there? Um, but you know, what, that, are, what has the is... Democratic Party done? What has the Democratic Party done? I, I want them to answer this question, and they never will. But what have they done to root out racism in America? I want to know. Literally nothing. 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 It's it's disgusting. I, it's, Joe Biden, it's, Joe Biden himself. I mean, like like Kamala Harris mentioned in the debate in the Democratic debate against Joe Biden, um, Joe Biden himself was key in turning the Democratic Party away from anti-racism in the 1970s when it came to school busing. And so now uh, we're more segregated than we were than we ever have been, you know. So the Democratic Party, even though they've been in power in the 90s and they were in power with Obama, somehow we're still more segregated than we were. Like and black wealth collapsed under Obama. So yeah, what have they done? Nothing. Literally nothing. So. All right. Well, um, we have four minutes. And Kale, I, I since I promised, we have to take at least one super chat question. All so right. choose wisely. Let's take it. Let's do it. Let's answer it quickly. Yeah. Um, well, we need one. So, folks, our lovely audience, send us a question. No. No, we I might have had, already, had, then. We got to go. We've had. We've <laughs> we had. Go. We've had. Yeah. We've had. Okay. Give uh, me one. No, yeah. We've had. Come on, Kale. Um, it, the, I don't, it doesn't save all of them from earlier in the show. Um, send me something. Just um, send me a question right now. Asking, anyone. Someone, <laughs> the, someone was the asking about the John, the John Favreau tweet that he deleted. Uh, you know, did you guys see that tweet? The John Favreau tweet? No. Um, what was the yeah, tweet? Yeah. He, so he, he was responding to a... Um, uh, a, a reporter that was talking about how like a lot of the Democrats are like uh, angry that they did so poorly or whatever. And he was like, come on guys, we cannot like be talking shit in the pu- in public. We can't be like doing this. We have to make our decisions and our criticisms internally. You know, like we can only do these in private meetings. Uh, we can only air out mm-hmm. criticisms of the party in private meetings. And someone was like, well, who's, who, who's invited these meetings? Like, well, organizers and strategists like, like me. So basically he's just saying like, Fuck you guys. I don't I don't care about any of you people. Um, the only people that matter are Democratic strategists, which is actually like a weird way of like telling on themselves, because that is the Democratic Party. It's sort of like a, a an affirmative action program for political consultants or something crazy like that. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, it's amazing because I, I, I'm wondering if uh, Favreau spoke out when Nancy Pelosi was aggressively attacking no, AOC no, in no. The New York Times. And oh, no, no. he wasn't. OK, then no, how no, about no, yeah, yeah. I'm glad he erased that tweet and realized how stupid right. it was. Um, uh, wait, should, should we answer who for president in 2024 quickly? AOC yes. or Bernie 3.0? Uh, I'm, I'm Bernie. 100 percent. 100 percent. Bernie 2024. He's the best. It's, my sister, my sister texted me. She goes, "Bernie, twenty twenty four, and I'm like, "I'm on the train, baby." Yeah. I I want to add one caveat because I'm one hundred percent Bernie, twenty twenty four. I don't care if he's planning on winning. Like when we look at the last six years of Bernie campaigning, he has completely uh, reanimated the left in this country. Like he yeah. has inspired workers to go out on strikes. He has brought in almost a hundred thousand people into a socialist organization. Uh, we've won a number of important electoral races. I don't care what happens in 2024. I want Bernie running for president from now until then, because it's the until only good thing in yeah. America. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, Bernie's got yeah. like 20 more years. We love the man. Yeah, we love him. Yeah. Yeah. He's amazing. And and that's not a knock on AOC. Um, I think AOC has a great 
um, bright political future ahead of her. Um, I'd, I'd like her to be in Congress a little while longer. Uh, but yeah, I would love to see Bernie run again. Um, but yeah, we need to also build uh, and encourage more people uh, who have a similar ideology to run in these congressional races. And luckily, that's been happening. I'm, I'm super excited about Cory Bush and uh, Jamal Bowman. That's important. And uh, I think AOC and uh, Rashida Tlaib, uh, Ilhan Omar, they've been able to continue pushing the messages that we've been wanting. But of course, they're going to be more effective if they have more, you know, congressional peers who want to go along with what they want, what we want and what we need. So... Yeah, and Bernie's Bernie's the heavyweight. He's our he like. There's no one else yeah. like Bernie. So, like the rest, everyone else, we are building our our capacity right now. And so, 2024. If it's not Bernie, then my guess is like there's not really a shot for the left running for president. Yeah. But like that, we we should never be considering the strength of the left based on our electoral success. That it, it's a nice metric. It's useful, but. Uh, we need to be implanting ourselves into working class neighborhoods, communities, businesses, uh, that we need to be where working people are and, and uh, facilitating in their and developing their capacity to fight for themselves. That that's what an organizer is. It's we're there to spur on the working class to fight for itself. All right. I think that's a, a hopeful message to end on. Thank you, everyone, yep. for watching Weekends. Um, Anna, Nando, and Kale with you. Um, if you like the show, please share it. Uh, enjoy your brunch uh, every weekend from here on out, <laughs> now that uh, Biden has won. Brunch for all. Um, yeah. Some people didn't get the joke, uh, but no, yeah, it's, all right. it's okay. That's all right. It's okay. Uh, it's okay. Yeah. So um, make sure you share the show, uh, like and subscribe, and we love you guys. Keep fighting the good fight. We'll see you next week.